Yusuf Shawani is the co-founder and CEO of Quit Genius, a digital clinic for addiction. Quit Genius started life as a smoking cessation app, which Yusuf and his co-founders created whilst at Imperial College Medical School. They've since expanded to the US and have raised just under $80 million. We talk about their overnight success and how it wasn't really overnight. We talk a lot about decision-making and useful mental models Yusuf uses, and some of his biggest failures and how he dealt with them. I hope you enjoy. Could you tell me a little bit about your story? So how it all got started and how you got to where you are today? So I've always had like deep interest in really understanding how things work. So I grew up programming. I grew up like testing out different projects, almost as businesses before I really knew what businesses were at a young age. Um, just trying to see like, you know, can you build something that people will actually use um, and can create value um, and excitement for those people using it. Um, and then in some way, you know, monetize that to actually keep that running. Um, and at the same time, like, you know, as I was at that crossroads going into, um, you know, trying to decide, okay, well, what do I want to spend the next few years of my life doing at university? Um, like, I really enjoyed some of my clinical experiences as well. So I'd been doing, you know, like volunteering work and work experience in a hospital setting. Um, and actually, it was such a difficult sort of decision for me early on that I ended up taking a gap year, partly because I didn't get into medicine, but I think mostly also because I just wasn't able to commit to that, like, you know, one career trajectory for the next, um, you know, six years. Um, in that year, actually, um, I started a business um, selling high-end audio, which we bought from China. Um, and then, you know, we started to kind of really rebrand in the UK and, um, and, and market that, um, you know, to people in the UK who are really, really interested um, in purchasing, um, you know, like high-fidelity headphones, custom, you know, in-ear headphones that were actually molded for their ears. So, like, had a number of interesting ideas over that year. But ultimately, you know, what I decided was that in many ways, like the business opportunity will always be there, the ability to actually, you know, create something that um, delivers value to people is something that like can't necessarily be taught by going to business school, or, you know, just doing a computer science degree. Whereas a unique experience that you actually get as a clinician um, and being able to help people in that way um, through the healthcare um, is something that like needs to be taught at least from an early stage. And you never really want to teach yourself to be a doctor. Um, so like, I eventually made peace with the idea that, okay, I'm going to commit to the next six years of medicine. I wanted to do it at Imperial specifically because they had a management degree as well. So that gave me the opportunity to actually kind of take a year out um, and like study at least a theory of like what it means to, you know, to potentially build a business. Um, and, um, you know, in the meantime, um, I could learn to be a doctor um, and see if I could some, you know, at some point combine some of those talents. So in many ways, like, like I started med school being open to the idea that I wouldn't necessarily commit to a long-term clinical career, but I'd use some of the clinical knowledge that I gained over the next few years um, to find other ways that are more within my kind of like skill set to eventually help people. And then like fast forward, you know, four or five years um, into the course, um, had done the preclinical training, um, had done a degree in management. Um, and we we're at a point where we had done a really interesting project um, that I found like kind of super fascinating uh, that was understanding like why technology wasn't being more widely used um, to help people um, with behavior change, um, specifically focusing on smoking cessation and addiction. And this is sort of just before my final year of university. And we completed this project with a group of friends. It had scored incredibly well. People um, were really impressed by it. And I found myself thinking a little bit at that point that, okay, well, you know, 
we're at this crossroads again. Like the traditional path that everybody's telling me is that we should just publish that, we should present it at conferences and we should kind of end it there. Um, and we can use that as a stepping stone on our kind of CV um, to, you know, build a career in academic clinical medicine, for instance. And at that point I was applying for an academic foundation post. And, and as you know, they're super competitive and, um, you know, I'd sort of thought, okay, well, um, you know, that's kind of one version. I could almost play out like the next five to 10 years of my life, you know, spending some time in academic medicine, spending some time in clinical medicine. And then the other side was, well, why is no, like we've done this interesting research project, but nobody seems to be kind of actually doing this stuff. Um, and to get into the, some of the nuts and bolts of it, you know, we'd realized that actually the people that really understood technology and understood how to design great user experiences also didn't understand the clinical sciences of how you use therapies like cognitive behavioral therapy to help people with an addiction. And then on the flip side, the people who really understand understood the behavioral sciences had no clue as to how you go about actually using great user experience design and technology um, in a friendly and user-centered fashion to actually help people. And like we were kind of sitting there um you know with a foot in each um you know in each kind of road and and thinking actually if you could combine the two together you could find a way of really building value for people and scaling that value um over time and that's what really kind of led me down the journey of okay well there is potentially something to be built over here and what if we take you know the blue pill for instance um and you know go down the path of just exploring at this point as a project what it would look like to turn this into a commercial enterprise and you know can we build a new type of digital clinic that can help people with a substance addiction starting with tobacco smoking to actually you know help change their behavior and um and you know totally change the way that we we treat those types of addictions um, and that was like a really formative experience for us because, you know, at that point going into our final year, um, we were treating uh, the idea that was soon to be quite genius more as an interesting kind of project of let's see if this has commercial legs. We're not particularly emotionally tied to the outcome. We still have, you know, a potential career ahead of us. Um, but we want to see if that, you know, if, if we can actually turn this into something that people actually wanted. Um, and I think like those like I think that decision to initially pursue it as a project um, versus as um, like a business um, really helped us in many ways because we could like we didn't have too much emotional tie into the idea. Um, we weren't like too afraid of like failure. I think a lot of the time some of the most interesting project like some of the most interesting ideas like start out as projects or playthings. You have like really low expectations, few stakeholders. You don't have kind of investors. You don't take yourself too seriously. Um, but you can actually test the fundamental idea that you know if you actually create like you know a mobile app that uses some of these great behavioral science techniques and also you know merges into it user-centered design um, then people actually started to use it and some of the initial user feedback we were getting was wow this is incredible never come across anything like this um, it's totally changing the way I think about you know my addiction about my smoking habit um, and in many cases, even from an early concept stage, some of the initial ideas were actually getting people to successfully quit. Um, and then came the you know, decision of, okay, well, should we actually pursue this really as a business now that we've de-risked the fundamental idea um, and turn it into what would soon be quite genius? Or, you know, should we kind of stop over here and, um, and like go down the more traditional path? I'll kind of stop over there um, for a second, but it was a bit of a long winding story in, you know, how we eventually ended up in Quick Genius. I want to dive into something you said early on in the story, which is before med school, when you and uh, I think your friends are making businesses selling high fidelity audio in the UK from China. 
Can you talk about some of the lessons you picked up from those early days and those early ventures that maybe you still apply today? Yeah, that's uh, a, a good one. And um, I would probably say like the, the biggest lesson, well, th- there are a couple of like fundamental lessons and it wasn't my first sort of business either. Like I'd been building, you know, different, I, I would call them projects versus businesses still, but projects that made money and sometimes made fairly significant amounts, uh, significant amounts of money um, for a few years, you know, before that point. Um, I think there were like a few fundamental lessons. Like the first is, to pick your co-founder, um, you know, really wisely. Um, and I actually had great experiences with co-founders up until that point. Like I, you know, used to work on these um, on these projects or business ideas with, um, you know, very close friends. Um, and, you know, in, in at least one case, one of the smartest people like I ever knew. Um, but what I probably didn't appreciate up until that point was that like your co-founders, um, you know, it's great to have shared personal history with them. Um, but you also need to be complementary. Um, and in some of the cases with some of the early projects, you know, we would basically be the same people. So we would enjoy the same things, we would be good at the same things, we would be bad at the same things. Um, and that sometimes caused challenges and clashes because we weren't able to really complement each other's strengths in the same way. So I've kind of like developed a theory on the back of that, that when you're picking your co-founders, ideally you want as much personal shared history because you really understand people, um, like, you know, on a fundamental level, you understand what motivates them and you have the same set of shared values. But what's just as important as having some, like the commonality is having a lot of differences between yourselves. So you have, you know, the same core values, but you have a different worldly outlook. So you're good at different things and your strengths complement each other. Um, and that was like really important in, you know, understanding, okay, at Quit Genius, how do we move from the project phase to actually building this in a business and what will, you know, make a successful like co-founder relationship. And, you know, we tried to be as intentional as possible in those early days um, of really setting that up. You know, the other one I would say is just persistence. Um, like a lot of people look at what we've done and, and kind of say, oh, you know, well, it's an overnight success. They've, you know, had um, uh, a lot of, you know, success as a result of like market timing. They've been lucky to start a digital health business at a time that digital health is, you know, burgeoning. But, you know, having started that, like, or having kind of embarked on that journey years before people were really spending much time on digital health, um, like, I think comes a lesson that you've just got to be super persistent and you've got to, you know, really never give up. But there's a difference between persistence and patience. So patience is just trying the same thing over and over again and not really adapting your approach. Whereas persistence is, you know, understanding the hand that you're dealt and really trying to kind of iterate and improve over time and try different things up until you get to that point that you find, you know, product market fit. And that was definitely something that was drummed into me, you know, very early on, um, having kind of tried these projects and just realized how much critical mass and I guess activation energy it takes to get something off the ground. And you really have to kind of like, you know, learn you know, learn how to kind of uh, do do like a really hard work ethic. I think the typical advice I've heard, at least with picking a co-founder, is not to go for your friends. Um, why do you think that's kind of worked for you in all these encounters? Was there anything, was it on the back of that theory? Was it that you've always picked people with shared personal beliefs, but they had differing kind of world outlooks? Ideally, you know, I would hesitate on Kind of overemphasizing any truism that you know you you have to start a business with your friend or you you know should never start a business with your friend and often you know people will kind of like come up with these truisms on the back of their own personal experiences and i know plenty of examples where it succeeded and where it's failed um in in both cases so you know i i definitely wouldn't say that you shouldn't be starting um a business uh, or a startup with 
you know, your friends as being your co-founders. I think in many ways it can be like a competitive advantage um, and an unfair advantage. What I would say is that, like from what I've seen, you want to have enough that is similar between you so that you don't clash on fundamental like beliefs and, you know, things of like, you know, what is the long-term outcome that we're building, you know, towards what is like, you know, our like method of working together. So you need to have enough tying those people together. But the last thing you want are like, you know, two or three doppelgangers who um, are basically carbon replicas of each other. And that's a really difficult question to answer because you can't actually know the answer to that until you've spent enough time with that person. So actually in the early days, many people would look at, you know, myself, Maruth and Sarum as co-founders and say, well, you guys are exactly the same. You know, you're all kind of like South Asian young guys, basically the same age. Um, you all went to medical school together. You've literally done the same degrees like you know, how are you going to have, like, how are you going to be able to specialize in the different, um, you know, roles and responsibilities it takes to build uh, a company? And I think that's a bit misguided because actually whilst, and, and people who have worked with us, including our investors, the board, and, you know, our employees would probably agree on this, but whilst we're similar in many ways um, and we share the same long-term objectives, we're actually very, very different in the ways we work together. Um, so, you know, I tend to be a bit more kind of long term strategic, I think, with a more commercial hat on, you know, quite quantitative um, in that way. Um, and, um, you know, in, in many ways, I'm like better suited to running the commercial organization so I can, you know, sell myself, sell the company, sell employees, sell potential stakeholders. Um, you know, Maruf, my co-founder, is a lot more operationally minded. He's always in the details in a way that I struggle to be. Um, so he will know kind of, you know, he, he was a guy in medical school who was sitting at the front of the lecture theater um, and had memorized his notes backwards on every single lecture and like didn't miss a single lecture, you know, day in his life and is really, really kind of detail oriented. Um, and then Saram is quite different again because he's really good at like washing out a lot of the noise that typically exists. Um, and, you know, as head of product at Quick Genius, he's good at really kind of dumbing down the requirements and saying, okay, what's actually needed, what's not needed? Um, and how can we, you know, like make the overall requirements of a product less dumb and, um, and like work from first principles? So I would say that like, as long as there is enough tied, like tying the founders together, but there's like complementary skill sets, um, and they have a clear idea around how they're going to divvy up the responsibilities um, and reinforce one another. Like it, it can work like really, really well. Can we fast forward and go back to your story? And perhaps you could kind of go into the part, you, you know, of the overnight success where Quit Genius goes from like a fun project with a few friends to really like a commercially successful business. Yeah, definitely. So I, I guess like the first thing I would say over here is. Um, most of the time the ceo and the founders get like a disproportionate amount of the credit um you know for what goes on and it works both ways as well they probably get a disproportionate amount of you know the failure when things actually don't successfully work out and it is an insane amount of work to actually found the company and like you know create value but you know even that um uh, is just the tip of the iceberg in terms of you know the, the the total amount of work that's actually necessary to get a project like that over the, you know off the ground um, so, you know, I caveat this story um, with um, people usually overemphasize like the role of, you know, me as one person within that whole, you know, overall environment. Um, I would say like 
as we started, you know, through off towards the final year of medical school to move from the project phase to, you know, more of the startup phase of, okay, we've got to actually, you know, really build something that people want, deliver value to our end kind of users. Um, the first nine months were like probably the most grueling. So we just graduated, uh, we finished our final exams and um, we pretty much um, went immediately into just working on, you know, the company and, and, you know, decided, okay, the first thing we need to do is ship a product, get it out there, get it in the hands of users as soon as possible. Um, and, you know, it was tough. Like, we didn't pay ourselves for the first month. We've, we'd raised very little money. We were kind of looking at our monthly expenses and really trying to figure out how we kind of survive month to month. Um, and we were literally raising money on a rolling basis, just enough to pay, um, you know, the previous month's um, you know, salaries. And, and that was a time, like, I think a lot of people would probably, you know, give up because, you know, we were making very slow progress in actually shipping the product um, out there. Um, and then when we did eventually ship the product out there, um, it was clear that we still needed to do, you know, a huge amount of work um, to, to really kind of fix some of the fundamental initial problems. Um, I would say like the turning point was almost getting into Y Combinator. Um, and, you know, at, like just before we got into Y Combinator at the start of 2018, um we'd started to recognize that actually we were building something of value people were using quick genius they were actually changing their habits uh, around it and we were getting really good user feedback but we hadn't really figured out what a scalable business model looked like um so we had a consumer approach it was um you know paying a very low overall fee um and like you know that fee wasn't necessarily covering the true cost of actually delivering the service to people because we were starting to add other components like human clinical care and coaching to the you know into the equation um and you know we, we knew okay there's something over there but we just need to figure out how we actually monetize that um so start of 2018 we then get into y combinator and i'll say that was like definitely a turning point mainly because the process of moving the company that was still you know kind of six or seven people at that stage to silicon valley um like resulted in an overall mindset shift uh, for everyone so uh, just being surrounded by other sort of really smart really ambitious really determined people um who seem to be making phenomenal progress week on week um, you know they're getting stuff done um really motivated like motivated us to be the best version of ourselves and i think the value of yc was really drumming a single lesson you know into us through a thousand different methods through family stories and the weekly dinners that you would have that the only thing that really matters is delivering value to you know your end customers and getting to product market fit um, and that's when we started to actually realize that you know what this consumer approach isn't really working people aren't comfortable paying the true cost of their healthcare. they always want to pay a more subsidized cost of their healthcare because that's how people have been kind of conditioned um, up until that point but there's a huge amount of value that we're generating in the healthcare system um, by getting people to change their behavior around smoking cessation and um, that we need to find a different way of capturing and that might involve going you know via the healthcare payer um, going via employers um, and really just trying to understand more of the value chain of like who actually benefits when someone successfully quit smoking and then how can we capture some of that value and do so in a way that enables us to kind of go at risk and and be a value additive over time um, and that you know, eventually led us to um, switching the business model and almost pivoting from consumer to enterprise and then focusing, you know, to cut a long story short on the US healthcare market versus, you know, in the UK and really cementing ourselves as working towards the goal of becoming the leader for addiction medicine um, amongst US healthcare payers, which is where we are today. So yeah, there's kind of like a lot more to that um, overall story, but I, I would say that, 
you know, we, we then started to just see a whole lot more velocity as we, um, you know, focus on the business model that was actually, um, you know, starting to show real signs of working. And, um, and, and then just comes like, you know, hard work um, to actually make all the different parts of that, you know, add up together. But um, that was kind of the start of the real growth journey for the company. Sounds like from your story, a lot of uh, the kind of good things have come up from being in the right institutions as well. So you were at Imperial College Medical School and Management School, then you went to YC and you were in Silicon Valley. Um, how fair of an analysis is that? Was it was a big part of it being in the right place? Yeah, I think so. Like I wouldn't kind of underemphasize a lot of the luck and um you know, opportunity that we had been given by, you know, being in an institution through university that enabled us to meet, you know, co-founders um, and build a really strong relation to, relationship together prior to actually starting Quick Genius. And then subsequent to that, um, you know, of course, um, uh, having the opportunity to actually go to YC and, you know, surround ourselves by some of the best investors and product builders, um, you know, of, of our time. Um, I would say that, like, um, you know, a, a, a big component of it is also just being willing to learn and having like a learning mindset. So, you know, what we didn't learn from YC or our mentors, like, we would just constantly be trying to re-educate ourselves through books and articles and blog posts, um, and and reading and sharing some of those learnings and like building a mental network around us. So, I do think that like you are a product of your environment at the end of the day. And if you surround yourself by kind of great people who are ambitious, who really want to do things, um, then um, it's a great way of optimizing for your success. But, you know, that alone isn't enough to really get you where you want to go. You also need to just adopt that learning and growth mindset where, you know, you're constantly reading, you're constantly putting some of the kind of ideas and lessons that you get from those, you know, books into practice and kind of experimenting just to continually improve yourself. Um, I think like like a, a quote that I was quite fond of is like you are the average um, of your five closest friends. So you know choose wisely who you surround yourself with. Um, but on top of that, you should also be trying to make you know your friends better as well by um, you know uh, self improving yourself. I think there's a temptation when you hear a great story like that, a quick genius or any other business, is that whoa, I I wish I had that idea. Like that's such a great idea. Of course, it was going to do well. What do you think about that? Was it more kind of a great idea or was it down to great execution obviously it'll be due to both but like which way did it swing more yeah i truly believe in like the you know the the truism that it's one percent inspiration 99 percent perspiration yeah pe people often come to me um with uh you know, looking to discuss um you know business idea that they have and um you know it sounds kind of great on paper um and they never really take it anywhere um so i would say that it it really all comes down to the execution you know ideas are a dime a dozen uh, most people you know will have ideas that end up becoming commercially hugely successful um you know by somebody else for instance um and it really just comes down to kind of executing on that and building a sense of urgency and and, and really kind of choosing that you know prioritizing what you actually want to do so um I also don't believe in the idea that um, all the great business concepts have already been done and it's just getting more difficult over time. I think if anything, it's getting easier over time because all the ingredients that it takes to actually build a successful business, um, like the 
um, you know, the, the cost of actually launching a business is coming down so precipitously over time. Um, and when you combine all the different tools available to you um, and that much lower cost and then the you know, capital that we have in this day and age to actually raise money and how that's really become you know, a lot easier, um, there are so many opportunities to really kind of improve things. So I think, yeah, in retrospect, everything is straightforward and seems like um, you know, it should have happened even earlier than that. But um, I think we're in probably kind of the greatest age when it actually comes to um, you know, executing on some of these ideas and, and everything does come down to the execution at the end of the day. What are the most difficult parts of your job? I think uh, I would say the most difficult parts of my job is holding myself back and recognizing that sometimes I can go in and you know, solve a problem in my own way. And, you know, things will be surfaced to me. And it's very easy for me to kind of look at that, you know, challenge and say, okay, well, you know, let's sort of break that down. And here's a 10 step framework for how I would do it. And let's kind of go out there and, and actually solve it in that way. Um, but what that often leads to is a slippery slope where you end up micromanaging basically everybody on your team. And it creates a bit of a dysfunctional culture that results in poorer decision making. Um, and, you know, by contrast, just being able to step back and let other people solve their own problems um, and working with them as a coach and a champion in solving that problem rather than trying to do it for them and then just handing them that task to go and implement, um, you know, can, can be a challenge, but also just has a much greater payback because you get, you know, better judgment decision-making. Um, you know, those people feel a lot more empowered. They feel like you're on your team. You're able to really listen to what their problems are um, and then like add, you know, value to them versus really just trying to kind of do things, um, you know, for them instead uh, in a way that they wouldn't want to do it themselves. So I would say that just being able to step back and listen um, and then being a coach is a challenge, but, you know, also incredibly rewarding as you start to find more success, you know, through, through, through those um, decisions that end up being made. Would you say that in terms of stress that you're, you were more stressed during kind of medical school, let's just say, you know, near finals or, kind of you know in your current role in quit genius and could you also give some kind of analysis of like the flavor of that stress does it kind of differ between those two roles yeah I, I, I would definitely say it's a it's a different kind of stress I was never particularly stressed during medical school um you know there, there would always be a lot of pressure to perform and I was definitely one of those students that probably like left the majority of their work towards the tail end of the year um and then it would be this mad dash to actually just revise and download everything and um uh, and and get through the exams in one piece um i would say that as a startup founder managing your own psychology is a real challenge that you have to get on top of um and it's very easy to get too emotional and get personally tied to specific outcomes um and you know i mean f f feel, feel emotional you know every time things don't go your way um so you know failure is often a very loaded word um in you know for, for for people in general and it has a big taboo and sometimes stops people from actually taking risks um but just being able to manage you know your psychology manage failures like get used to hearing no's whether it's from uh you know investors customers potential employees you know all, all, all of the above um and recognizing that your own personal self-worth isn't tied to um you know the outcome of your company like that's really crucial in able to just like in being able to really disconnect and not let you know not let work stress actually get to you 
um, in the first place. So I, so I think it's definitely been a bit of a journey and I by no means pretend to be an expert um, on the subject. But I would say that we're at now at a point where there are, sure, lots of stressful things that, you know, go on in an organisation. There are lots of audacious goals for us to meet. Um, there's, you know, um, a lot of high expectations. Um, but at this point, you know, it's become important for, I guess, just my own personal functioning, not to tie my self-worth and get personally stressed about that. So I've become quite good at being able to just take a step back um, and say, you know what, I'm not going to get stressed by that. Um, and, um, you know, I'm going to try experiencing the moment to the best of my ability and do what I can, but also recognize that um, it's, you know, it's not the be all and end all, like having, you know, having that particular thing, you know, work out and, and, and be successful. If you don't mind, would you mind talking about a big failure you've had and what kind of came out of that? Yeah, so I would say my, my journey is kind of like of, of, of lots of micro failures. Um, and it's so important, I feel, to norm and normalize failure and help people I guess like for, just for people to recognize that if, if you're failing, it's because you're taking risks um, and then it's just a question of consistency um, and making enough attempts for some of those risks to pay off, but not taking risks that, you know, um, where the downside of like the downside outcome of failure um, is overwhelming and, um, and, and can, you know, can, can knock you out of the game altogether. Um, so, I mean, you know, w- one example in many ways was actually switching our business model from being much more consumer oriented to enterprise oriented. Uh, We worked for probably 12 to 18 months, really just trying to figure out how we can make the consumer channel scale um, over time. And whilst we were actually delivering value to our end customers, it wasn't something that they were willing to actually pay the true cost of for. Um, And that was really challenging for us at the time because, um, you know, we were seeing some success and it was one of those situations where you have like very mixed KPIs. So some things are working out incredibly well, but other things aren't working out. And it's not a case that like nothing whatsoever is working out. Um, And at that point, really just being able to actually kind of think in the concept of bets and say, okay, well, let's just change our hypothesis and let's go out there and test an alternative way of doing business. Um, and an alternative B2B2C business model that enables us to actually, you know, be successful and capture some of the value that's being generated. Um, that was enormously, you know, helpful to us. But I think um, the fact that we're able to take, like, use an experimental framework for this and come up with a number of different ideas and, you know, know that some of them would probably fail, but we're going to just keep trying, um, you know, different things until it actually works, you know, made it a very comfortable transition for us as an organization because we weren't tied to any one particular outcome. And I think that's where some of the challenges end up, you know, you, you know kind of, I guess, being created where you're like emotionally tied to a particular outcome and you take that failure personally as being a personal failure, of, you know, in your self-worth as an individual. Do you ever need to be a dick to be a good leader? Yeah. Um, I can wholeheartedly say no. Um, I don't believe that you need to be a dick to be a good leader at all. Um, there's actually one talk that um, really, um, you know, I, I return to my notes to um, on a regular basis. And it was actually a talk given by Ali Rogani, um, who was the CFO, um, I believe, at Twitter um, and at Pixar um, to Steve Jobs and to uh, Jack Dorsey and you know Evan Williams um, and Ed Campbell, so some of the most successful leaders, all of whom had like a very different leadership style. So you know, personally interacted with you know Steve Jobs, Ed Catmull, um, you know, and a, a number of really influential builders um, in Silicon Valley. And the thing that stands out to me is that leadership needs to be authentic. Um, 
So it needs to be authentic to your own personality. And in many ways that can be optimized. So, you know, I, I do think that like there is a way to be a very compassionate leader um, that um, involves actively listening to your team, aligning yourself with, um, you know, their own personal growth trajectory um, and, uh, you know, doing so in a way that actually builds community and camaraderie um, and shared values around, you know, set goal. I think like people often immediately, you know, when they think of a great leader, go, you know, to some of the most extreme stories from like Steve Jobs or I don't know, Elon Musk, for instance. Um, and, and, and they also cherry pick some of those stories where they say, okay, well, this guy's a great leader and he also did X, Y, and Z. And I definitely don't think that's like a necessary prerequisite at all. The last thing I kind of wanted to talk about was decision-making. Um, and I know you've written loads of interesting stuff on this. Um, I was wondering if I could kind of pick out a few points that you've written on and we could just talk a little bit about them. Yeah, sure. So one of the points you made about good decision-making is when faced with the choice of accuracy or speed, choose speed. A general rule of thumb is to make a decision by the time you achieve 75% confidence. What does that mean? So I think the lesson there is that decision-making velocity really matters. Um, and it's easy to sit on a decision for an um, unreasonable amount of time in stasis because you just want to optimize for making the right decision. And I think three out of four times, you don't like whether it's the right decision or the wrong decision doesn't really matter. Um, and it's more about making the decision and then learning from that decision. Um, so like the framework that I use is... Um, is, is a fairly common framework. Um, yeah, Jeff Bezos at Amazon has talked about it before. It's the concept of one-way doors and two-way doors. Um, I think of it more in the concept of a two-by-two two matrix of how reversible is that decision and how, you know, how, how big a magnitude would that decision have. And I think apart from the case where there is low reversibility and high magnitude, so something is a one-way door, like when you make that decision, there's no coming back from that decision, that definitely warrants a lot more consideration. Um, and you need to really think through the ramifications of that decision to make sure you have all the right um, you know, stakeholders involved in it. But with the exception of that case, every other decision pretty much can be made very, very quickly, knowing that in most of those situations, you're able to course correct and learn from the data um, in the real world. And I think you know, high velocity decision making is a competitive advantage um, if you're able to actually embed that into the culture of your organization. Another point you've written about is the difference between good conflict and bad conflict. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so I, I, I would say that this is one of those things that you, you, you definitely um, will recognize it when you're in those situations, right? Um, so if you're ever in a meeting and there are lots of stakeholders and it sort of turns into, you know, just it, like a game that leaves you feeling like, a sense of distaste almost where people are personally attacking one another um, there is an alignment over what you're trying to actually accomplish people have hidden agendas it feels you know almost political like it's it's very palpable in the air um, and you just get a sense of well there's no progress being made nothing's being done and this is you know really kind of boiled down to um, who's got the loudest voice in the room and that's like a classic example of bad conflict it's when you know, the, pe people aren't optimizing for the same intended outcome. Um, and then there's probably not the sense of healthy respect and psychological safety, um, you know, within that group of people. Um, and then you also have a palpable sense of when there's good conflict, where there's healthy 
um, respect for all parties in the room, you know, who are involved in that decision. Um, and um, everybody is thinking from the same first principles of we want to optimize for this particular outcomes. And there's just a disagreement in terms of how we get to that outcome. And I think in those situations, it's fine for there to be, you know, um, an impassioned debate around, well, what are the different opportunities? And I think it's just more about managing healthy conflict. So it's really around ensuring that everybody has equal voice. You're not optimizing just for the extroverts, but introverts also have an opportunity to, you know, have their say. People are being concise um, and people are being respectful and there's psychological safety. And I think psychological safety in those situations is table stakes for having good, healthy conflict. But usually through those processes, you're able to actually get to decisions very, very quickly um, and agree a shared set of principles around making those decisions. Um, and then sometimes not everybody will agree, but um, if you have a good decision-making framework and there are lots of them out there, then you know somebody takes all the arguments, uses that to make a decision, and then you just revisit that decision um, as soon as you possibly can. And um, in doing so, you're able to say, okay, were some of the assumptions that initially went into that um, correct? And have we reached or are we on course to reach our intended outcome? And if not, then is there new information or data that's come to light? And then should we course correct on the back of that? Um, and I think like, people enjoy those situations and it's quite obvious when that is happening and it's quite obvious when some of the unhealthy versions of that is um is, is instead happening the last point i wanted to ask about and this is kind of decision making but it might also be a bit more about happiness and things like that but you've said you said that a, a good framework to use is regret minimization what does that mean so, so um yeah that goes almost into the concept of mental models um, and um, some of the frameworks that you can use to look at a decision from different lenses. Um, and regret minimization was, you know, definitely has been instrumental to me in my life at different points. So in deciding to pursue a career outside of clinical medicine um, and build something that could potentially deliver value at scale for a lot more people, it really came down to, okay, to maximize my long-term happiness, um, let me actually just prioritize the projects I want to pursue based on where I would feel the most amount of regret. And, um, you know, it's worked out pretty well, I would say. Um, and it's one of those cases of, you know, one-way doors and two-way doors. It's, okay, if I didn't take the opportunity at that point in time, then I would probably lose that opportunity and wouldn't have it in the future. Whereas, um, you know, if the ability to pursue career, you know, clinical medicine is something that is potentially open to me, you know, at some point in the future. Um, and I think I would have less regret of not pursuing that because I know I can come back to that if I really wanted to. Um, so that's an example of like one type of mental model, but there's like, you know, naturally lots of types of, you know, mental models. And I do think there's a lot of value in analyzing potential decisions from different kind of lenses. So, you know, other ones such as probabilistic, you know, thinking and using the Pareto principle of things that I try to actually return to as frequently as possible when I'm trying to analyze particularly like a, re a really difficult decision from different lenses. I know you gave this caveat kind of earlier on about, you know, not paying um, too much attention to everything. So I think one of the points I've heard is with Naval Ravikant, who says that, you know, sometimes studying people's decisions too much, studying frameworks too much, sometimes it's like reading winning lottery tickets that you might ascribe too much um, to something that might have happened due to a lot of factors that you don't necessarily know about or might not apply to you. The kind of question is, is do you think that like with these things you've read, these concepts you've picked up from reading and stuff, 
how instrumental do you think these were in kind of the success you've had with Quit Genius? And how much do you think was down to kind of other factors? I mean, I, d- I definitely agree with that quote in that as humans, we always look for causality in what we do. And, you know, th- there are so many business books out there. And, you know, this is why I try to be as picky as possible in reading some of these books, because I think they can give you a false frame of reference where, you know, they cherry pick, uh, they cherry pick specific um you know, success stories and outcomes, and then they try to work backwards from those success stories and outcomes and look for common factors. And it's it's definitely not scientific. Um, and, you know, I, I definitely wouldn't want to be in a position where I say, okay, well, our, our success is the result of these specific decisions we made and these specific tools that I use. Um, because overwhelmingly, there's going to be a huge amount of luck and serendipity that's involved. But I do think, you know, there are certain things that you can do that optimize um, for, you know, a particular outcome. So just taking, you know, consistent risks, um, uh, having an experimental, you know, perspective, being able to make, you know, decisions fast. I, I would say that these are some of the first principles um, and I guess like accepted norms that can help you optimize for a particular outcome. So there is a lot within your control, but I would say that there's a huge amount of luck that's also involved um, in any success stories that usually the person or the organization or company that's at the center of that was probably going to have the my- most myopic view in really understanding what they were. So I would never want to distill things down to a recipe book of you do these five things and this is where you end up. But I do think that there is value in looking at commonalities across success stories and trying to optimize for some of that because there is like some truth um, to, to, to be gained from that process. I know you read a lot. And I was wondering if you could give a few books, blog posts, whatever resources that you think are, have been really great and instrumental for your life. So I, I'll, I'll probably caveat this with early on, I used to think that actually just like volume of your reading is probably the most important thing, being exposed to lots and lots of different ideas. Um, and, you know, I read voraciously on the back of that. Um, and then I realized that actually concepts weren't sticking, like many people who read a lot, and you kind of just forget one book when it's kind of two books behind. Um, and now I, I really try to optimize as much as I can for quality. So that's really understanding who's recommending this book, why are they recommending this book? Um, is this broadly speaking seen as a good book? Has it been around for long enough for it to be um, you know, generally interpreted um, as, you know, as, as a valuable book to read? And then you know, as I read a book, I always try to actually take a couple of concepts for it uh, from the book that I could put in practice immediately um, and then see whether or not those concepts actually yield results for me. Um, And I think this is definitely a personal experience. Um, You know, certain concepts from certain books may be, you know, valuable to some people, they may not be valuable to other people, but that process of reinforcing it and testing it is actually quite valuable. And and that means that you're actually getting something out of that experience. And if not, you you know, you had a good experiment, it didn't really work out for you, that particular concept, and you sort of move on uh, to the next thing. Um, In in terms of specific book recommendations, I'm a bit reluctant to to give too many specifics because I think there are great books out there for lots of different things that you want to do. I, I can probably speak to a couple of recent ones that you know I've read. So I think Working Backwards, um, uh, which distills some of the principles from the early days of Amazon, um, was probably one of the best books I've read this year so far. There were a number of concepts on the back of that that we immediately put in action at Quit Genius, and we've yielded you know have yielded really really interesting results. Um, so, so that's been great. I think actually, generally speaking, like writings from Amazon, 
as an organization are quite valuable and getting as close to the source as possible is also quite valuable. Um, so, you know, one of the most interesting kind of readings I, I did a while back was reading the shareholders' letters. Um, and that's where you're getting directly from the source, like firsthand, I guess, thoughts and experiences around, um, you know, what the CEO thinks is actually the most relevant people for or the relevant concepts for the owners of his companies to understand around how Amazon works. So I would definitely recommend reading some of that stuff. But then again, like, you know, if you're tactically trying to optimize for sales and marketing, there's some great books out there for just that. Um, but, you know, if, if you're going to go down that route, then you know, I would always recommend trying to put some of those concepts into practice. Are there any kind of opportunities you've seen, you know, whilst you've been working on Quit Genius, maybe in different fields or different areas where you were like, okay, if I had more time or in another life, I definitely would have gone out and done that? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I would say probably not. And the, the reason I say that is not that there aren't kind of great potential ideas, but I, I wouldn't have like validated them and researched them to um i guess the point that you know people should feel comfortable taking my word for it that there's a market that exists if they you know pursue those ideas in many ways i, I think like the idea is probably less important um, and not that it's not important building a valuable company longer term but at least in the shorter term um just going out there and like not optimizing for you know the perfect idea that exists but going out there and actually just you know, executing, getting, get, getting things done, like, um, you know, creating a value hypothesis for any given idea, finding ways of getting user feedback and validating that and then iterating that. I think that's the most important thing. So in many ways, it doesn't matter what you necessarily pick as a starting point, as long as you treat it as a, proje a project and a plaything. thing, you know, you don't take yourself too seriously as a business and you just cycle through lots of different things, but you try to be as data-driven and as experimental as you possibly can be. Um, you know, through that process. I think that's far more important than waiting for the perfect idea where there's a huge, you know, total addressable market and you figured out the killer business model that's really going to get that off the ground. That very rarely happens. Occasionally those um, opportunities come along, but at the time they don't look like sure bets. Um, it's only in retrospect that you can actually make that distinction. Um, but, you know, what's most important is actually getting out there and testing some of these ideas and really kind of figuring out what works and what you would enjoy working on personally and where you would find fulfillment and, and purpose. I hope you enjoyed that episode. You can find all my links by going to bigpicturemedicine.co.uk. And if you've been enjoying the podcast, then please consider leaving a review on iTunes. Thank you.